0: Would you open your Bible with me tonight to Psalm 73, Psalm 73, I wanted to go to Psalm 73 tonight, it meshes somewhat well with what we were talking about this morning, talking about forgiveness, uh, the trials that come when people sin against us, and uh, though the and, and how uh, bitterness and envy can be a struggle for God's people. Psalm 73 addresses bitterness and envy, not specifically because um, Asaph senses he's been sinned against, but he has, he has envy as he looks at um, how the world works. And, and the people who have no care for God seem to be flourishing. And here he is um, seeking to serve the Lord, He he believes that God is good to his people, and yet his people seem to suffer uh, while the wicked flourish. And so uh, there's an honest struggle here of of faith, there's a crisis of faith, and uh, I think it's a great psalm just to remind us of of, um, how do we get um, messed up thinking back on track? How do we, when our hearts have gone off astray, when our minds are confused, when our faith is wobbly, what is it that God uses Uh, to reorient us, and we have all that in Psalm 73. I'd like you to read with me as I um, follow along as I read Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But, as for, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's ask God to bless. Oh well, Lord, our God in heaven, thank you for this honest confession of a man who struggled, stumbled, and yet, Lord, you held him fast. You kept him in the faith. You brought truth back to mind, and Father, I pray you do the same in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds tonight. Show us, Lord, how blessed we are as the people of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73 is a a, a painful, brutally honest confession of a believer in God who is um, found that he has fallen into a bitter spirit, an envious spirit, and in that place he almost lost his faith. His feet nearly stumbled. He nearly just gave the whole thing up. Uh, this psalm is, a, is a, a great reminder to us um, that uh, as, as the heart goes, the man goes. As the mind goes, the man goes. What we think, what we feel can have a powerful and devastating effect on our life. Uh, No matter how strong we might be theologically, doctrinally, when we allow um, um, untruth thinking, thinking that's not in accordance with the Word of God, when we allow emotions to grip our hearts that are not in keeping with the truth of God and the goodness of God to us, um, our faith is going to be shaken and challenge. There's grave danger in a, a bitter spirit and an envious heart. I was uh, just uh, as I've been reading through Chris Braun's book, um, Un, Unpacking Forgiveness. He, he, he mentions um, his fascination as a as a young boy, teenager, with mercury. Uh, mercury. Says this: When I was a junior in, uh, in when I was in junior high, some friends and I discovered mercury. We were in an out of control uh, we were in an out of control science class and we had too easy access to the chemical cabinet. We started experimenting with different chemicals, and mercury was our favorite. It's an amazing substance. It's physically dense. Even a small container of mercury weighs a lot. It is shiny like liquid aluminum foil, and it has higher um, viscosity surface tension. So you can slide mercury around on a piece of paper. You can break it into little droplets and then put it back together unless everyone decides to keep some of it, which they did. We were fascinated by mercury and extremely foolish. Much later, I learned that mercury is highly toxic. Do you, do you guys remember doing this? I clearly remember doing this in school. The little ball rolls around and it is really cool. Mercury is highly toxic. Get mercury into your system, it'll go to your brain and make you crazy, literally. The Wikipedia article on mercury poisoning says mercury damages the central nervous system and endocrine system, kidneys, and other organs, and adversely affects the mouth, gums, and teeth. Exposure over long periods of time or heavy exposure to mercury vapor can result in brain damage and ultimately death. Other than that, mercury is great for you. And then he says this, bitterness is like mercury. It's tempting to play with. We can stew for hours on end thinking about how we've been treated unfairly and how we hope someday justice will be done. We slide bitterness around in our minds, slip some of it into our pockets, and we are so foolish because all all the while it is attacking our bones. What we really need to do with bitterness is deal with it as soon as possible. Uh, an envious, bitter spirit is a, is a dangerous thing to play with. And and here in Psalm 73, we see someone who's been caught in an envious, bitter spirit. It, it does not make sense to him the way things are going. It doesn't seem right to him, and he almost loses his faith. And so let's look together at the complaint and then how um, his, his vision is corrected. The complaint, verses 1 through 12, uh, Asaph begins with a common foundational understanding fact of the Jewish faith truly god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart this is this is common accepted knowledge the basic affirmation of god's people that god is has been good to his people he brought them um I, way back in the patriarch's day, he kept them safe in the land of Canaan. He brought them to Egypt where they were protected for 430 years, although in, at the end they were made slaves. But God was good and he came and delivered them. And then God, in his goodness, brought them into the land of Canaan and, and uh, removed the nations from before them. Uh, God, God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. He, he promises to be good to those who do good. And on on the flip side of that coin is that that God um, punishes the wicked. We we see way back in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And and God will bless that man, but not so the wicked. There there are two classes of people in the world. There are those who love the Lord and seek to follow God, uh, trust in His promises, and then there's the wicked. And... and, uh, God punishes evildoers. He, he responds to wickedness. There's a, there's a moral order in the world. There's a balance. There's, a, there's, there's truth that prevails. And so, this is, this is just a fundamental fact of the, of the Jewish faith. The problem for Asaph is that as he lived his life, that basic tenet didn't seem to hold. It didn't seem to be exactly true. In fact, as Asaph looked around in the world of his day, it didn't seem like the wicked were really suffering for their wickedness at all. In fact, they seemed to be doing very well, they seemed to be prospering. The people who were suffering seemed to be generally the people of God. And so, this moral order that he had assumed to be true was maybe it wasn't true. What he professed didn't seem to be matching what he was observing, and and so he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we don't know what exact circumstance brought on this crisis of faith. It's very likely, because commentators have suggested this, uh, that Asaph, as the chief musician, would would have access to all the, the pagan dignitaries who made their way to Solomon's court. Uh, Asaph is living in um, the evidence personified of God's goodness to Israel, God's goodness to those who are good. He has been so good to Solomon. Solomon is, is a man full of wealth and wisdom. Um, he He's just an amazingly blessed figure like no one else in his day. And yet as these, as these dignitaries from all around the world come, these arrogant, fat, sleek, confident, proud pagans, I mean, they might not be quite at Solomon's level, but they sure don't seem to be suffering. They seem to be doing magnificently well. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. I, I think if you grew up in the church, um, I think you probably grew up assuming to some degree, because that was sort of the message that you were receiving, you assumed that that unbelievers live miserable lives. and these these were stories were told us maybe to help us um, want to be good, that that wicked people live miserable lives. and and that only those who really believed in God lived with joy and contentment. And, and then you grew up and you, and you entered the real world. You went to school or you went to work. And you realized the world didn't really, they didn't look very miserable. They seemed very happy in their pagan lifestyle. Very comfortable with it. If anyone seemed sort of burdened by guilt and misgivings, it didn't seem to be the pagans, it, it, it seemed to be much more true about Christians. Uh, if anyone was really living a blessed, carefully, carefree life, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't um, us, it was them. And, and so that can be some cause for serious. Th- People lose their faith over this stuff. People will say, you know, I, I wasn't told the truth. You can, you can live without God and be happy. You don't need God to be happy. You, you, can, you can live your life and flourish with no God in it. Well, Asaph points out that the various things that he saw that, that bothered him, how, how could this be? He, he, notice how he describes the wicked. They, they have no, no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't have struggles like normal people. Verse 5, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They, he's watching these people come, and uh, they, they're, their bodies are fat and sleek. Fatness, of course, in those days is not a sign that you got a medical problem. It's a sign that you're doing great. You've got plenty to eat and more than enough to eat, and people gloried in their fat. Oh, for the good old days. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it wasn't anything to be ashamed of, it was something to be gloried in. You had oil on your body, you were fat, their eyes were bulging because of the fat. That was was seen as a a sign that you mattered and you made it. And they don't seem, they just don't seem at all to struggle the way common people do, normal people do. They have the same thing today: the beautiful people of this world, the pop stars, professional athletes, the atheists, maybe two cubicles down doesn't seem plagued by common ills. They drive their nice cars. They, they, um, they spend their money doing what they like. They go on nice vacations with their new boyfriend or girlfriend. No conscience problems whatsoever. They don't, they don't seem plagued by common ills. And therefore, pride is their necklace. They, they, and they clothe themselves with violence. They 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 like their life. They they like who they are. They like it a lot. They, they they trust themselves, they serve themselves, they accommodate themselves, and they do not apologize for it. In fact, they boast about it. They wear their pride like jewelry. I don't bow to anyone. I do exactly what I would what I like, what I want. I live for me. They, they don't apologize, they write songs about it. I did it my way. Right? They, they love their pride, even if it devastates other people. They clothe themselves with violence. Their garments are, are violence. It means that, that in their pride, they, they trash people. They run over people. They wreck people. Malachi 2.16 is an example. For the man, God says, who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard your, yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You See, you don't love your wife, you divorce your wife, you're covering yourself with violence. You're just, you're just destroying people as you proudly serve yourself. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with, with follies. They, the, the, the foolishness just flows from them. The things that they say are Foolish. Their calloused hearts and evil minds are a fountain of sin, and, and their, their mouth speaks out of that foolish heart. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Uh, loftily, they threaten oppression. NIV says, in their arrogance, they threaten oppression. If People do this to me, I'm, I'll do this to them. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth, a great great way of saying that. Their tongue struts through the earth. You hear it in their, um, their music. Springsteen, I believe it was in my day, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners have much more fun and only the good die young. Uh, he's, he's singing an anthem to his, uh, his rebellion. He's going to do it his way and live his life. And no one's going to stop him. And you're seeing this increasingly in our culture, where, where uh, people are unabashedly um, denouncing God. Um, a, a scientist, we maybe family camp a few years ago with Jim Herrick, um, who was talking about how scientists are seeking to um, move human evolution along by by creating a, the the next version, right? Human 2.0, in a sense, this this blending of man and machine. And uh, and uh, one of the scientists says, you, you know, people accuse us of playing God. Well, somebody has to. There is no God, so we'll be God. And who's to stop us? Verse 10 and 11. They say, uh, how can God know? Can the most I have knowledge... Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And it means that people like this. People drink this stuff down. People, people see these bold, arrogant, proud, boastful, uh, violent people, and they love it. They flock to it. They identify with it. They buy t-shirts with their name on it. They, bear, they, they wear the clothing that, that this person represents. They flock to this. Because, because it resonates, you see, with them. It resonates with, with uh, the common wicked man and woman. This is how we'd like to live if, if we had it our way. And the, the wicked are just able to do, because of their finances, they're, they're able to do what people sort of wish they could do. This is what the wicked are like. Always at ease. They increase in riches. They just, they just bounce from glory to glory. You see, Asa's problem here isn't that wicked people are wicked. He can accept that wicked people are wicked. The problem is, the crisis stems from the fact that they are happily, blessedly wicked, and there are no consequences. And they are happily, blessedly wicked, living um, the good life, getting all the the things that this world has, and, and God's people are struggling. God's people are dealing with the common Things that people deal with, children dying in infancy, sicknesses that if they had the resources could maybe be cured, but they can't be cured. The resources aren't there. says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken. I've been rebuked every morning. I mean, what, what's the point of this? I've been, um, I've been trying to live for the Lord I've been serious about it. I believe that God is good to those who are good and who seek his face. And yet, I, I struggle with the common sicknesses and troubles of men. And I, I've been rebuked. I've suffered every day. My conscience rebukes me. The, the, the law rebukes me. The world laughs at me. I, I don't think it, you have to stretch a great deal to experience his anguish. If you have any sense of how God's people actually live in the world and the oppression and the suffering that God's people um, deal with every single day, at the hands so often of wicked people, I think you start to sense, how does, how does this make sense? I was just seeing an article this past week of um, some Nigerian girls who'd been captured by Boko Haram. And now they had just been returned to their families. And um, the families were weeping and hugging these girls and, and they were dancing. And, and I just found a thought in my heart, yeah, but, you know, that's nice they got rescued. But why did they have to get captured? Why would, why would God let his precious daughters be captured and, and unspeakable things done to them in the first place. How, how, does that, how does that work if God is good to Israel? We have, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are tormented and targeted by, by those who hate God. There are Christians in countries all over the world who are watching children suffer, children die for lack of food and clothing while godless leaders and politicians and military leaders or whatever are fat, sleek, warm. This is real suffering. How, does, how do you make sense of this? And, and, and Asaph says, when I, when I tried to think this through, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I was, I was deeply troubled by it. It's, it's, it seems like he kept it to himself. He says, if, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, if, if I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So it, it seems like these are things that were just going through his heart and in his mind. If he had actually spoken it, if, he, if he'd gotten up and said, listen, people, it's a, it's a, it's a hoax. We've been lied to. It doesn't work. All this trying to do good and be good, and this idea that God is good to those who are, go- who are good, good to Israel, it's just not true. I've seen the truth. If I'd have said this, I would have betrayed a generation of God's children. Asaph is in a position of leadership. He would have betrayed them because he would have been speaking a lie. But it's difficult. When I tried to understand it, it seemed it just was deeply troubling. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. There's something about um, worship that brings clarity. I hope you experience that Sunday after Sunday. I always look forward to a Sunday just being in the, in the presence of God with his people and opening the scriptures together and singing songs of praise to God again together, remembering the gospel again. That, that brings clarity to life. Through the week, uh, the circumstances of your life can seem to be the ultimate things, the most significant things, and, and can warp our thinking and warp our, our faith. But when Asaph says, when I come into the sanctuary of God... Suddenly, it becomes clear, and he, and he sees two things fundamentally. He sees the poverty of the wicked and the blessedness of the righteous. He, he sees what he had sensed to be true, but, but he had to see with the eyes of faith, because of the, his human eyes were, were telling him something completely different. But when he, when he went into the house of God, it, then I discerned, I saw their end Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. In other words, the blessings that they've received are blessings indeed, but because God is not giving them faith and insider conviction and repentance with the blessing, people worship the blessing and serve themselves with the blessings and destroy their soul with the blessings. And that's exactly what you see going on all around us, people who are living the good life. And yet have no sense of the goodness of God in that, and no no desire to worship the God who gave them the blessings. They are in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terro- terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, as fantasies. They, they just disappear. They're gone. There's no substance, there's no eternal weight, no glory. See, what Asaph sees when he comes into the house of God is, is the truth about sin, the truth about wickedness. What if all the material blessings that, that that God has given in our day and to our country? What if what if this is God's judgment on people who've decided they really don't want anything to do with God and 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 so God says, well, then I'll let you enjoy the blessings, and you can live for the blessings. And in those blessings, you will fall to your ruin. That's what Asaph sees. One day, he realizes that uh, this life of evil and ease, this this godless life, is just going to be done. And in a moment, the people who've who've so confidently and arrogantly, and and arrogance has different forms. It doesn't just mean boasting. Arrogance can mean just this quiet confidence that I am sufficient unto myself and that it is perfectly okay for me to serve myself. I don't need to make headlines about it. I don't need to make waves. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's exactly how people live, whether they're wealthy or not wealthy. And it's okay for me to clothe myself with violence if you step across my boards, my rights, if you, if you violate me in some way. That's just, that's just given. And yet, when Asaph comes into the house of the God and realizes again the truth of God and the holiness of God and the fleeting nature of life and the incredible truth about eternity... That that people in a moment are going to be there, they're going to be standing before a holy God, and and they will not be able to change anything about their past, and God will despise them, he says, as a dream. The horror, you see, of people who will stand in front of God without Christ, it's just, it's awful, It's, it's horrifying, it can't be explained truly, much less overstated. And so in light of their end, in light of of the, the real truth about them, eternally speaking, doesn't it seem not just silly but wicked that we would be envious of them? How can you be envious of someone who's that lost, that desperately lost, and headed for such a horrifying eternity? That's what Ace of senses. He, he says in verse 21 and when my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. Just no sense, no understanding, ignorance blind. God, how come you're doing giving all these blessings to rich to the, to the to the pagans why do why do people who have no regard for you why are they flourishing and we're suffering it's not right it's not fair my I'm not sure I can believe this anymore And then God says let me remind you of their end How often it'll be do you realize when we see the glory of Christ and and the new heaven and the new earth lay there open before us. You realize how you feel brutish and ignorant for all the times you envied people, their new car, their nicer home, their trophy bride, their easy life, and the hell that came right after it. How foolish, how just utterly, absolutely foolish, how rich you were, how rich I was, how blessed we were. Because we had this one thing, and that's what he sees here, verse 23 and following. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. That is such a treasure of, of, of words there. You hold my right hand. Dear Asaph is saying, I was brutish and ignorant. I was, I was as stupid as an animal. And yet you kept me, you didn't let me go. I, I could have wandered off, I could have said, forget this whole thing, I'm going to just go be like them, and yet you, God, you held my right hand, you wouldn't let me fall, you wouldn't let me go. Even when I was brutish and ignorant, when I was, when I was this close to charging you, God, with, uh, with being unfaithful and unworthy of my devotion and worship and praise, you, God, were holding on to me. Though Asaph had left God in his heart, God had not left Asaph. You guide me with your counsel. That's what we do when we get around the word. When we come in worship, God, God guides us with his counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. You see, his end is fundamentally different. And Asaph realizes he doesn't deserve this. For some reason, God has set his love on him. That's the only explanation for this. God is, for some reason, has determined to, to, to own him and claim him and, and give him this gift of of the steadfast love, the holding love of God, and the guidance of his counsel and the glory that is to come. Can you see how that melts his heart, how that, how that just removes the stupidity? When he realizes, what, what would you give in comparison to the glory of heaven when, when there's glory eternal promised you? You say, how could my heart still hunger for temporal things as though they are life? Oh well, friends isn't it true though that we get tempted. If I ask you um, give me give me three things in your life right now that you wish were different things that you or I asked someone who knows you well, your spouse, a best friend, tell me three things in this person's life that they complain about. They could probably tell me three things that that oh um, well, they just they just wish fundamentally were we're different, and they'd be happier if it could be different. Well, the same is true. It's all true for us. And yet, you see, if, if, we have, if we have this, if we have God, shouldn't we be satisfied? And that's where Asaph goes, doesn't he? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's, friends, where we need to go. That's what what being in the sanctuary God is supposed to do. There are things that we lack. Those are things that God in his sovereign good pleasure has determined (coughs) is for your good and for your glory. There are health issues. There are relational issues. There are work issues. There are there are things that, that bring pain in your life. And yet, being in the house of God, me. <coughs> To bring us to this place where we where, where we recognize if we have if we have God in Jesus Christ freely given to us, if, if we have God. How could we ultimately desire anything else? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be able to say, Lord, my flesh and my heart may fail, and it will, but God is the strength of my heart. and God is my portion forever. What a wonderful, blessed thing to be able to say. See, friends, and that will, that will cure the coveting. That will cure the envy. It'll cure the bitterness, because now when you look at the world, there will not be this, this sense of, I wish I had what they had. There'll be pity, genuine pity. If they don't know Jesus Christ, all the, all the toys, all the pleasures, whatever, God good gifts God has given to them, there's going to be a pity. They don't, they don't have the giver. They don't have the creator, the maker. They don't have Jesus. They need Jesus. You see, friends, God is good to Israel. He's more good than Asaph ever could have realized. God in his goodness gives us himself. God in his goodness gives us Jesus Christ as our advocate, as our high priest, as our righteous. God in his goodness gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us and convict us and direct us in truth and and hold us in the faith. And God in his goodness promises that that we are more than, than conquerors over a persecuting world and that death itself is not going to be able to separate us from his love. And one day there is a new heaven and a new earth. One day we enter into the glory that God has promised to us. And so, friend, let those truths, let that reality, let the weight of that goodness settle on you. Let the weight of that goodness purify you, transform you, change the way you pray, change the things that you wish for. Let it remove all complaining from our mouths. Let it erode every bit of bitterness or envy or covetousness. We have Jesus. You can have this whole world, right? But just give me Jesus. Friend, God has given you Jesus. May he be our treasure. May he be our portion, the strength of our heart, our portion forever. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for your kindness, your patience. Lord, we have all been like Asaph. We've coveted what the world has, or maybe even what another Christian has, but we've coveted it as though it were life. We've desperately wanted some thing or things and wondered why you have kept it from us while you've given it to someone else. And in our heart, we were brutish and ignorant like an animal, like a beast. Father, we thank you that you've held us fast. I thank you, Lord, that in the sanctuary of God, you show us how how blessed we are. That we have God, the living God, as our portion. And Father, if we have you, if we have you through Jesus Christ and by your Holy Spirit, if we have you as our portion, how could we complain? How could we covet someone who does not? So forgive us our sin. Forgive us our ignorance. I pray, O Lord, that you would drive this truth home to our heart that it would change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we live. That we'd be people who walk in this world of passing things with the confidence that we are securely held by an eternal God and will never lose the eternal blessings that are ours in Christ. Lord, be merciful to us. We are weak people. We are fickle people. But, Lord God, draw us to Jesus, draw us to Christ, not simply to be saved, but to be satisfied, to delight, to rejoice, to be at peace. Lord, that will will change us, that will glorify you, that will keep us walking until we reach our home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.